Welcome to the Sermon Audio Podcast of Hill Country Bible Church, Georgetown. The podcast bringing you biblical messages that encourage you to put Christ at the center of everyday life. We're here to help you engage in the local church and to invite you into a life that matters through Jesus. If you have any questions about your next step, visit us online at hillcountry.life. And now for today's message. Good morning. Wow, was Isaac's story incredible or what? You know, we're going to talk a little bit this morning about why Isaac is right and how when we have skeptics in our life, how we can respond to them. So I want to welcome all of you who are here in the room right now, everybody watching online as well. Say Merry Christmas to you. We've got six days. Okay, how many of you guys are ready this time? Raise your hands. All right. We've got more. I'm sure some of the guys are waiting for Christmas Eve to go shopping. <laughs> Amazon Prime, baby. <clears throat> okay. Yeah. <laughs> Have you ever noticed at Christmas time, there are some people who, who just can't seem to see, keep a secret, right? Uh, you know, maybe, maybe you're that way, you know. Have you ever bought a present for somebody, and you were dying to give it to them, but you had to wait? It, it ends up killing you more than that other person, doesn't it? You know, I know I have a hard time holding it, and I can't tell you how many times that I have bought a present for my wife, Wendy, and I'll go to her and say, oh, you are so going to love this gift, honey. But I can't tell you, it, it's a secret. She's like, okay. I'm like, don't you want to know? Nope, can't tell you. It's, it's, it's a secret. And finally, I'm like, okay, it's a gorgeous top-of-the-line vacuum cleaner, sweetheart. Yeah, I'm kidding. I'm not that stupid, okay? But uh, I'll usually end up blurting out whatever it is, right? Or I will end up having her open the present early or something. And, And I think about that sometimes when I think about the Christmas story. That God, when he sent his son Jesus to this earth to be the Messiah, for good reason, had to do so in kind of an obscure way. You see, the world was expecting this Messiah who would come in power and glory. But Jesus was going to be a different kind of Messiah, a suffering servant kind of Messiah. So in order to introduce people to this concept, he chose to come incognito. But I think that God was so excited about his gift to the world that he couldn't entirely keep quiet about it. And so he thinks, I've got to tell somebody. And so, of course, he tells Mary, and he tells Joseph, but that's not enough, right? And he's thinking, i got to tell somebody else. I'm going to tell those shepherds down there. And you can almost imagine heaven going, well, okay, but but keep it subtle, right? And so we read in Luke 2 that God sends an angel to say, I bring you good news of great joy. But then, suddenly it says, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel. You know, it's like God gets so excited, he's like, okay, hey, all of you angels, go on down there, right? Let those shepherds know. Inside God, I believe there's something like the heart of a child that's so full of love, so full of excitement, he just can't contain it. He can't keep it in. And of course, God's greatest excitement is to tell you that a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. It's good news for you. And on that day when you grasp that and when you put your faith in him, God is so excited for you. And so we're in this series called Down to Earth. And it's all about what God was doing in and through the various characters of the Christmas story. And today we're going to talk about Jesus. That Jesus was literally God come down to earth. God in the flesh. So let's dive in here. 
Right, the Christmas story begins with God sending an angel to a woman named Mary to tell her that she was going to have a child and she was to name him Jesus. Okay, fair enough. But what makes this unusual is the fact that Mary was a virgin. She was not married. She had never had relations with a man. So God was about to do a big old honking miracle. And that's what we sing about. That's what we celebrate at Christmas time. And the question I want to pose to you today as we begin is this. Do you really think that happened? Like seriously, do you think a baby was truly born of a virgin? And if so, what are the implications of that? Because a lot of people don't think it happened. Centuries ago, Thomas Jefferson said this, the day will come when the mystical generation of Jesus by the supreme being as his father in the womb of a virgin will be classed with the fable of the generation of Minerva and the brain of Jupiter. See, Jefferson believed that Jesus was a good man, very influential, but that unfortunately a lot of fables grew up in the centuries after he died, and it would be a good thing if we could detach those fables from the things that Jesus actually taught And so Thomas Jefferson, he took it upon himself to write his own version of the New Testament Gospels. With all the accounts of the miraculous, the virgin birth, Jesus' miracles, the resurrection, everything taken out. It's a very short version of Jesus' life. In fact, there's a contemporary theologian, Gerd Ludemann is his name, and he asserts there was nothing, nothing miraculous about Jesus. And here's how he sums up his scholarly contributions. He says, Jesus' wretched tomb was full. In other words, resurrection, eh, it's a myth. And his manger was empty. In other words, that Bethlehem story with the angels and shepherds and wise men, yeah, no, 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 that's a myth. He says, that may be said to be the overall conclusion of my work. Tomb is full, manger is empty. You know, sometimes people, as well as religious institutions, become a little fuzzy on this particular topic. Happens a lot in our culture today. The virgin birth is thought of as kind of a metaphor, like a nice story that gives people more hope. But a lot of people are embarrassed to examine it as an historical claim, as something that actually happened in time and space. For example, this is a verbatim quote from an official of a major denomination. I'll keep the denomination anonymous, but you would recognize it. This is a statement with reference to the virgin birth, and it kind of offers an explanation of what the leaders and theologians of this denomination actually believe. Did the virgin birth actually take place? Well, there's a diversity of opinions on the issue, but there remains a diversity of opinion over whether there should be a diversity of opinion. Like, how's that for driving a stake in the ground, right? Doesn't that give you something to just sink your teeth into? Hmm. You may have heard the story years ago. Larry King was asked who he would most like to interview, if he could interview any person from all throughout history. And Larry said, Jesus Christ. And so they asked him, what would you ask Jesus? And he said, I would ask Jesus if he was indeed born of a virgin. The answer to that question would solve all the mysteries of humanity for me. He said the answer to that particular question would define history for me. Hmm. Larry King, very famous interviewer. One guy you would interview, Jesus. One question you would ask, were you born of a virgin? 
Think about it. That is the hinge of history. Did that happen? And by the way, Larry knows the answer to that one now. (laughs) He passed away last year. And so this morning, I want us to examine why it matters that the Christian faith presents as an historical claim that Jesus was born of a virgin, that this was a special, unique individual who was born in a special, unique way. Like, what is at stake in that question? What was God up to? And then what does that mean for you and for me? You know, sometimes people get this idea that it was probably easier for those folks living in pre-scientific days to believe in a virgin birth, that nowadays we are so much more sophisticated and, and we know better. Well, in the first place, I think that's a little arrogant on our part. Like, people in ancient times were very aware of where babies come from, okay? Yeah. You may have heard the story of the, the little six-year-old girl who asked her mom, Mommy, where did I come from? And the mom was kind of taken aback. She was a little embarrassed. And so she launches into this long explanation of the, the birds and the bees and men and women and eggs and seeds. And, and then she says to her daughter, do you understand now, honey? The little girl, girl says, no, not, not really, Mom. And Jenny said she comes from Houston. Like, where, where did I come from? <laughs> right? People in ancient times do very well where babies come from. If they didn't, there wouldn't be modern times, all right? And beyond that, this is not a story that God told casually, okay? This does not have that kind of fictional account feel to it. You know, in ancient religions, there were these stories of heroes like Hercules and Perseus, who were the result of one of the Greek or Roman gods getting together with a human mother. And sometimes the thought is that the story of the virgin birth of Jesus was borrowed from one of those stories to give it more credibility in the ancient Mediterranean world. But the reality is the presentation of the story of the origins of Jesus was nothing like any of those stories, nothing like any story that had come before, nothing like the fables, nothing like the myths. In the myths, you had these gods like Zeus, who was always falling in love with some woman he saw on earth. And if you read much mythology, you know that Zeus was not exactly the poster boy for impulse control, okay? He was constantly falling in love with these earthly women, and his goddess wife Hera was constantly jealous. The gods of those stories were very much like human beings, sort of like superheroes with the same flaws that you and I have just larger than life. But the story of Jesus is like a whole different genre. And we read about the virgin birth of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke. And here's how Luke begins his gospel. Luke is a doctor, by the way. He says, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Okay, Luke writes explicitly as an historian, and he writes within a generation of Jesus' actual life. He writes when there's still many eyewitnesses around eyewitnesses who could challenge any inaccuracies in Luke's account. And both Matthew and Luke include in their story the historical details of Jesus' birth. It's geographical setting in Bethlehem of Judea. 
its chronological setting in the days of Caesar Augustus while Quirinius was the governor of Syria. They include details like the naming of Jesus by his father, Joseph, the circumcision of Jesus, the, the purification rites that Mary went through after birth. I mean, those are the kind of details that none of the other ancient mythological accounts about heroes like Hercules or Perseus ever went into. And as Jesus grew up, according to Luke and the other authors of the New Testament, he did and said remarkable things that no other good man or good teacher had ever done before. In one particular instance, he was in a controversy with some religious leaders, and he said this, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was born, I am. Hmm. As some of you know, in the Old Testament, that little two-word phrase, I am, was the name by which God named himself. It was so revered in Israel, they would never pronounce I am. They would never even write down those letters, I am. Jesus applied that name to himself. What does the Bible say happened after that? (laughs) At this, they picked up stones to stone him. No wonder. Everyone understood what he was saying. A good man would not say a thing like that. Good men don't go around claiming to be the one true God who created the entire universe. I mean, Jesus would also say things like, I am the light of the world. We lose sight of what a stunning thing it is to say, I am the light of the world. Like for a human being to say, I am the light of the world. You ever tried that one at home? If you're married, have you ever tried that one with your spouse? Right? Don't argue with me. I am the light of the world. See how that goes, right? If you're not married, put that on your eHarmony profile, right? (laughs) Single, attractive, enjoys good restaurants, and by the way, I'm the light of the world. Let me know how many dates you get, okay? And that's not all. Jesus went around claiming to forgive sins. Just think about that one for a second. How weird would that be if he was not God? If you were to turn to the person next to you right now and just smack them, okay, don't do that. That's hypothetical, all right? But if the person next to you slaps you, and I turn to that person, I say, it's okay, I forgive you. <laughs> You're thinking, whoa, time out, wait a minute, that, that's not right. Who do you think you are? What, what, what does this have to do with you? Like, people don't walk around forgiving people for sinning against other people. Jesus did all of the time. You know, back in that day, the rabbis loved and exalted and revered the Torah. It was considered to be their sacred scriptures. In fact, they had a saying, the Torah will never pass away. The Torah will never pass away. But this rabbi, Jesus, said in all three gospels, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words, my words, will never pass away. Not the Torah will never pass away. My words will never pass away. There's actually an old rabbinic saying dating back to Jesus' day. Rabbi Hamanaic Betharadion said this, Where two sit together and the words of the law are spoken between them, the Shekinah rests between them. The Shekinah was that cloud of glory that signified God in the Old Testament. Where two sit together and the words of the law are spoken between them, the Shekinah rests between them. Does that saying sound at all familiar to anybody here? 
Well, this rabbi Jesus once said, where two or three have gathered together in my name. See, now it's not with the Torah, but in my name. I am there in their midst. Jesus is saying, because I am the Shekinah glory. Hmm. His followers came to realize this is no ordinary man. What God claimed, Jesus claimed. What God did, Jesus did. Who God was, Jesus understood himself to be. Folks, there had never, ever, ever been anybody like this. His followers followed him not because he was a great teacher, although he was a great teacher. They came to realize that he was something more. You know, another thing, Luke tells us in Acts that one of the members of the early church was none other than Mary, the mother of Jesus. Okay, think about that. She was the one human being in all of history who knew exactly what happened when Jesus was born. Exactly what happened. And she told her story. It was common knowledge in that community. And again, in Luke's day, you have thousands of eyewitnesses who go all the way back to the early days of Jesus, all the way back to the early days of the church. This is not a myth or a fable. They reported exactly what had happened, and they staked their lives on it. Many died for it. You see, it matters that we affirm this concept of the virgin birth of Jesus. I don't know if you know this or not, but the Quran actually speaks of a virgin birth of Jesus. Many Muslims believe that Jesus was born of a virgin, but not in the same way that we do. See, as their story goes, God promised Mary a perfect child, but Jesus was believed to be a perfect human child, not divine. So that's where the Quran and the Bible are at odds. In Islam, Jesus is believed to be simply a prophet. In Islam, God is the God above us, the God up there. And, and in Islam, they just simply believe that Jesus was a prophet, and he, he may send uh, angels, God may. God may send prophets like Jesus. But Allah, the God up there, is too holy, and the earth is too messy for him to come down here. In other words, Allah would never stoop so low as to come down to this earth. In fact, in Islam, to say that Allah came down to earth, to say that Allah even touched the earth would be called a shirk. And that's when you associate God with someone or something that is not God. And if anyone claimed that Allah touched the earth or became human, they would be saying that we're associating God with what is gross, what is disgusting, what is defiled. And that person would be accused of blaspheming his glory. In Islam, that would be an unforgivable sin. So Islam and Christianity, we agree on the fact that there is a chasm, a gap between a perfect, holy, sinless God and imperfect, broken, fallen human beings. We agree that there's a chasm there, that there's a gap there. But that God bridged that gap. That's the amazing thing, that God bridged that gap. And if you think about it, for God to come down here, it is the most incredible, mind-boggling, humbling act in the history of the universe. That the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, would be born as a lowly human baby in a stinky barn. Mm. Speaking of Jesus, Philippians 2, 6-8 says this, Who being in very nature God, 
did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. See, there was no other way. We could never work our way up to a perfect, sinless, holy God. But one day, God sent some angels to a few shepherds in the field to say, hey, here's the good news. The good news is that in Jesus, God has come down here. God has come all the way down here. And he didn't just come for a brief visit. He he brought his toothbrush and razor and pajamas, right? He came to stay. Jesus, born of a virgin, took on humanity. He took on human flesh, our form. And then at that cross, he died to bridge that chasm between a perfect holy God and imperfect, broken, fallen, sinful human beings like you and me. And now, people, everything changes. It used to be we could not live in the presence of a perfect, holy God. But now, because of Jesus, we can be friends, friends of God. Jesus said, I no longer call you servants. Instead, I have called you friends. Wow. I mean, we sometimes think we got we to gotta do more. We got to give more. We got to serve more. I got to be better in order to have a relationship with God. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. I did all that for you. And now I'm simply inviting you by faith into a relationship with me. But the choice is yours. Have you done that? Have you said yes to God's offer of friendship in Jesus? As we close, I want to read a little blurb I ran across the other day because it really spoke powerfully to me. Forty years ago, on a weekend in August 1982, something tugged at then-President Ronald Reagan's heart. The president wrote the following in his diary that day. More of Saturday's work, plus a long letter I have to write to Loyal. I'm afraid for him. His health is failing badly. So who was this Loyal Ronnie was speaking of? Loyal Davis was Reagan's father-in-law, a brilliant neurosurgeon who was just days away from death. And why was Reagan worried? Well, the dying man was an atheist. In fact, Loyal Davis once wrote this, I've never been able to subscribe to the divinity of Jesus Christ nor his virgin birth. I don't believe in his resurrection or heaven or hell as places. Reagan, on the other hand, believed everyone would face a day of judgment and that Davis's life was nearing the end. So the most powerful man in the world put everything else aside, took pen in hand, and set out on an urgent mission to rescue one soul. This letter was found in the Reagan Library as part of Nancy Reagan's personal effects. He wrote this. Dear Loyal, I hope you'll forgive me for this, but I've been wanting to write you ever since we talked on the phone. I'm aware of the strain you're under and believe with all my heart there is help for that. It was a miracle that a young man of 30 years, without credentials as a scholar or priest, had more impact on the world than all the teachers, scientists, emperors, generals, and admirals who ever lived all put together. Either he was who he said he was, or he was the greatest faker and charlatan who ever lived. 
But would a liar and faker suffer the death he did? Reagan then wrote out John 3.16 for his father-in-law and added, we have been promised that all we have to do is ask God in Jesus' name to help when we've done all we can, when we've come to the end of our strength and abilities, and we'll have that help. We only have to trust and have faith in his infinite goodness and mercy. But did the letter have any impact? How many of you think it did? Let me see your hands. Go ahead. Raise your hands up. But here's the official report. Nancy Reagan, who was with Loyal Davis when he died, and who saved the letter he received from his son-in-law, said her father did indeed turn to God at the end of his life. Mm. All those guys, that you guys that didn't raise your hand, come on, guys, it's Christmas. Would, would I really end with a depressing story of an atheist dying without Jesus? <laughs> but is that cool or what? I mean, come on. That's awesome. You know, I thought about this. This really hit me. And this is what stood out to me. It it just shows you it's never too late, is it? It's never too late to put your faith in Jesus. People, it's never too late to reach out to someone you love and offer them the invitation to trust in Jesus. And what better Christmas present could you give someone than that? And this Saturday, Christmas Eve, 2.30, 4 o'clock, I will be sharing the gospel. The Holy Spirit will be present and will convict. What a great opportunity to invite somebody to hear the good news, the good news of Jesus. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes and pray. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never come to that point. You say, God, I want to be your friend. And I recognize that there is a holiness chasm. There is a distance between you and me. And I'd love for that to be removed. But I believe I can't be good enough to work my way to you. But in Jesus, you've made the move toward me. And I thank you, Jesus, that you came to this earth to live the perfect life I couldn't live, to die on that cross for me. And right now, I'm not trusting in myself my own abilities, my own works. I'm trusting that you paid the price in full and that you have promised that if I believe in you for forgiveness and eternal life, that will be granted to me. So I'm putting my trust in you, Jesus. And for the rest of us, I pray that we would not be ashamed. Like the little boy, Isaac, who stood out amongst his classmates and his family members, even when they were saying, oh, it's, it's a myth. It's bogus. It's not true. Didn't happen. We can say, oh, no, 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 no. There is historical backing. There's legal evidence. There is proof that this happened in time and space, that the virgin birth is real, and we need not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, God, I just pray that this week, in the coming days, we would pray and say, God, what what can I do? Who could I invite to come? And, Lord, we will just trust you for a miracle. Lord, you can work, and you will work in mighty ways. And, And my prayer is that this weekend, Christmas Eve, 
many individuals would receive the best present of all, the best gift. Your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, folks, let me just encourage you this week, starting today, pray to say, God, who might I invite? And then go out and have the boldness to say, come and join me this Saturday. All right, you guys have a wonderful day.